according to the Vatican News, persecution against Christians on the rise worldwide. New reports rank Afghanistan as the most dangerous country for Christians. North Korea reported a case of a young couple and their two-year-old sentenced to life in prison for housing a Bible. There have been at least 267 incidents across 43 states since May of 2020. Incidents include the burning of two Catholic church buildings, Christian Catholic statues beheaded, limbs cut and smashed, anti-Catholic language on gravestones, destruction, vandalism at Catholic sites. My question is, are Christians Catholics becoming a target in a spiritual war playing out physically in our real-time culture? Secondly, is the Church of Jesus Christ becoming the Church of Nice? Hi, I'm Julie Walls, and in this episode, we're chatting with Father Sean Raftus, a Catholic priest of the Diocese of Helena in the great state of Montana. Father Sean went to Gonzaga University for his bachelor's degree and later received several master's degrees. He has written several published works, such as a piece in the National Jesuit News, June 2005, titled Pope John Paul II the voice of the gospel of our age. Father Sean has an extraordinary background in teaching theology and communications while volunteering his time at women's crisis pregnancy centers. Okay, so a fun fact about Father Sean. Some of you may know about the 2013 Wall Street Journal article that inspired the 2018 blockbuster movie, Tag. This movie is based on a true story. Father Sean is a part of the original group of men who have been playing the game of tag for 23 years, starting in 1990. In this episode, we're going to learn a little bit more about his amazing educational background, his calling and the process into priesthood, and how Father leads parishioners through spiritual challenges that all of us are facing in a world with global uncertainty and instability. Father Sean will discuss his thoughts on what I believe is a spiritual war playing out physically in our real-time culture. Without further ado, Father Sean Raftis. Father Sean. (laughs) Thank you so much, Julie. I really appreciate being here. Absolutely. uh, it's It's been great getting to know you and your husband and your kids, and I'm just grateful and humbled that, uh, that you uh, invite me on the on the show. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I've been looking forward to this, as you know, since we've been talking for several months. <laughs> I'm so excited. So thank you so much for being here. Thank okay. you. We're gonna dive a little deeper into. We're gonna learn more about you. So okay. we know. Can that I you're... start with a prayer? Can I start with a prayer first? Absolutely, I love that. It'd be great. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Lord God, thank you for your countless gifts, uh, especially the gift of the Godlike facility to communicate uh, and to communicate reason and faith. And please bless our conversation and bless everyone who's listening. As we say, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be a world without end. Amen. Come to the Father, Amen. The Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks. Thank you so much. That You're was wonderful. Welcome. Thank you. I was praying this morning about it as well. So thank Good you. Good job. We're on the same yes, I, didn't mean to interrupt. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I figured out no. oh, this is worth it. I love it. It is worth it. Absolutely. 
All right. So we know that you're a priest in the Diocese of Helena in Montana, yes. which where we both live, which is a beautiful state. Um, but what um, what parishes parishes do you do the Eucharistic um, liturgy at? I am currently the pastor of St. Richard over in Columbia Falls, which is about 12 miles away from the West Glacier entrance. It's gorgeous. It's right by the uh, canyon, which leads you into Glacier. And I've been there about uh, seven years, and I've almost completed my first year at St. Charles Borromeo in Whitefish, which is where we live. And we only live a few blocks away from one another, and we only we look out every day at Big Mountain or Whitefish Resort as the... Uh, as others call it, and uh, it's just beautiful. So I celebrated St. Charles and St. Richard kind of um, trading in terms of one day of mass to one place. And so I kind of mixed it up. Yeah, yeah, we do. We live in an awesome spot and we're That's blessed to have you at St. Charles. Thank we you. really I are. Love yeah. being, I love being there. I love the people at St. Charles and St. Richard and the Diocese of Helena. There's very something very special about Western Montana and Western Montana. I absolutely. Just love it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I want to, I want for those folks that are listening, what are the two types of priests? Can you kind of explain that a little bit? And then we'll dive into your background. Okay. It's a great question. There are two types of priests, essentially. There's a diocesan priest. I used to be a Jesuit. I used to be a religious, but I am there. There's a diocesan priest and a religious priest. The diocesan priest is directly serving under the bishop of a particular area, for example, the Archdiocese of New York or the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. And so that those archbishops have auxiliary bishops to take care because they have a, a remarkably amount, a remarkably large amount of people, uh, the faithful they serve. And so the diocesan priest is one sort of priest. There's also religious orders like the Dominicans like the Sulpicians, like, you know, you can go the Franciscans. Uh, and so those serve under kind of their international orders because they have papal approval to be, to do their missions all over the world in Africa, the United States, Asia, all, everywhere. Because Jesus said, you know, uh, go and baptize, make disciples of all nations. So the religious orders are under like kind of a regional superior who has permission from the bishop to be in an area. And uh, these all enjoy papal approbation or approval. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much for sure. explaining that. We really it's appreciate a that. question. Sure. Yeah, I know. I, I was curious to know what your thoughts were on that. Okay, so let's dive a little bit deeper and in, in getting to know about a little bit more about you before you became a priest. Um, so where did you grow up? I grew up in Spokane, Washington, actually the north part of Spokane outside of the city limits, okay. right across the street from St. Thomas More Church and School, where we attended. Okay. And did you have brothers Beautiful. and sisters? I have okay. one brother, one, one brother, Pat. I'm the youngest of three, and I have an older sister, Margaret. Margaret resides in Spokane. Pat resides in a little south of Spokane in Pullman, Washington with his wife, Kelly. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. So pretty close. Yeah. I mean, we're not too far Very away. Close. Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, it's only four hours away for them to come here or me vice versa. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Nice. So were you raised Catholic? Yes, I was. I was baptized about 10 days after my uh, birth and I uh, was raised Catholic. And it was great because we did. Mom and dad intentionally bought a place right across the street from St. Thomas More School and Parish. So I used to play, you know, ride bikes around the school. It was great because we had a football field, baseball field basketball court monkey bars um oh yeah just I love the, whole, monkey the bars. whole night the whole, oh yeah me too there was always a blast 
and it was great. And we had paths to drive, you know, around and we had, it's kind of an archetypical, uh, great neighborhood in the suburbs, although Spokane itself was pretty rural anyways, but it was just a wonderful place to grow up. Great yeah. people and great friends. And, uh, and it was just, you know, it was, a, it was a fun childhood, you know, because it was very close knit. It sounds like it. We're going to dive into it. So tell me, okay. tell us, because I know I, I introduced you a little bit on the tag movie, but tell us a little bit about your childhood. It was really, I had a, a very good childhood. I was, I was, uh, my mom and I almost died in childbirth. Uh, I had, uh, I was born uh, and then I had like stomach infections. So I was had kind of a, a little bit of a challenge with my health, with uh, GI problems and everything. But my mom and dad were so loving, so good, so devout. I mean, they didn't, they were pious, but in a, in a way in which they had great senses of humor. They went to mass, they, but they also, you know, they, they took their vocations as husband and wife um, so lovingly, seriously, but not taking themselves too seriously. They worked very hard. So, and they always wanted us to have good educations. Uh, and always wanted us to live the faith well, and so it was just fun. I mean, uh, we had actually had we had the good fortune. Mom and Dad bought a little dilapidated log cabin right by Loon, right on had lakefront property at Loon Lake in the early '60s, and they built it up year after year. And it was a place we went out in the summers because my dad worked north of Spokane, so instead of commuting every day a little further, he'd have we'd, we'd have the great advantage of living at the lake during the summers playing, you know, riding bikes through the paths and everything. So it was, and I had a lot of relatives around who'd come visit or be on, in the, on the lake. They had lake places as well, but had good people. I grew up with, uh, you know, really funny friends. And my mom and dad had great senses of humor. So, you know, we took the faith seriously, but uh, we also just in, enjoyed life. And, you know, my dad worked to live, not lived to work. You know, my mom also is, my dad sold insurance mom. Uh, sold real estate so yeah it was pretty busy for both of them but they both had schedules where they could be home a lot and go watch watch us play sports or encourage us to play sports or do what we wanted they didn't they weren't helicopters they wanted us to do what we like to do but also you know they encouraged us to do very well in in school and uh yeah they were just it was they were just very I, I love them very much. They died at a young age. Uh, dad died at 60 of cancer. Mom died at 67. I was 21 when dad died, 26 when mom died. So, but I'm just so grateful I had that time. Uh, and I think about them every day and uh, just remember them in prayer every day. And they really, they were the ones responsible for forming me. They never said, you should become a priest. They said, you know, do what you, you feel called to do and we'll support you. Wow. That, you sound like you've yeah. had the ideal upbringing. Well, yeah, and it, and it came with it came with obviously, you know, being a little kid. Um, I was always smaller than the other kids. It was a little tough to integrate myself into the sports world. But I, yeah. I think my mom and dad gave us a beautiful childhood. It That's really wonderful. was. I mean, we and I, you know, I got in trouble and I, you know, misbehaved as every other kid does, as my brother and sister did. But mom and dad were always very just but merciful. So you know. They, well, and it they, sounds uh, like your front group of group of friends are a little ornery, which I I uh, love. Just, just give us very, a little little insight, a little story behind the um you know the game of tag. So so people know so, okay. just a little little something that we some people don't know, right? Okay, a great great question. At high school at Gonzaga Prep, we attended there from 1979 to 1983, and. 
there are just these these friends of mine. Well, everybody in the class I love, but there are these friends of mine who I think it was in junior. Yeah, it was in junior year or sophomore year. I think you know there are ten of us, and but it started out with a really small group, like two of them. Like I think Mike and Joe, they're, they're kind of cut ups, and they, you know, at the end of class, I think right there's a recess bell hit for twenty minutes. Mike hit Joe and said, "You're it," and then the game was on. So then it grew. And as Joe said, when he was interviewed on CBS, you know, they would, you know, at, at, at the recess bell, everybody would scatter like mice in order not to be caught. And people were running through hallways, which you weren't allowed to do. People were, you know, it was kind of mayhem. Uh, it's pretty chaotic, but it was great because as soon as the recess bell rang, the guy who was it was it for the day. So Joe Tomberry ended up being it on the last day of school in 1982 because we had a friend of ours, Patrick who he wanted to go tag, who was a year ahead of us. So at the end of our junior year, the tag game was done. So Joe was it for life. So about in 1990, we were all getting together for, we all got together because people were getting married. They had graduated from college and they were doing their own thing. And we were losing contact with one another a little bit. So somebody said, you know, maybe we should resurrect the tag game and give a little, give Joe a break, you know, because he was, it was the yoke of shame for life, you know, was, <laughs> uh, you know, so we had, so it was great. So Patrick Schulteis drew up. He is a, uh, one of our tag brothers. He was going to the University of Chicago Law School at the time. And he drew up a seven page tag participation agreement, three rules, uh, the whole month of February, nonstop. If I tag Patrick, he can't tag me back. And if you are it and you're asked if you're it, you have to answer truthfully and reasonably promptly. Those are the three, three rules. We all signed the contract in 1990. Pat has the original contract signed by all of us. You can look at it online, tag participation agreement that's somewhere in cyberspace. But uh, we, had, we did that for like, and we do just the goofiest things. It was great. You know, we travel from Spok 300 miles from Spokane to Seattle. Mike flew all the way to Boston from San Jose where he was working. And Chris was up in New York at that um, that weekend, and he hid in the bushes, and we'd go to bars and hang out. No Chris, so he struck out, but he got he he it's it, it gets better later. But so it just you know we never had any idea we would get any attention. We were just yeah. it was kind of like something to literally as as uh, ESPN called it, keeping in touch, because we want what we do is we tag somebody and then we just go hang out, go have a beer or get a bite to eat or just figure out some way to spend time with one another. And like, we either lived in Spokane, Seattle, or down in the Bay Area at first. And so we just like, hey, you know, Joe got me. Uh, Mike, why don't you come over? We'll meet over at Jack and Dan's, which is a, a great place to meet in Spokane. So it just it just was, we did it kind of unconsciously as something uh, one-off because the guys have great senses of humor. They're the funniest guys I know. And uh, we'd figure out inventive ways to get one another. For example, like Mike, uh, you know, would try to go over to Boston. I got in a plane in 1991 and flew down. Beef tagged me, Joe C. Joe Caffaro, he's, a, he's an aerospace engineer for Boeing, or was, tagged me. I took the tag, flew down to San Jose, got in Mike's car, a block away from Joe's place. He was a newlywed, got in the trunk. And I said, tell him you got a new set of golf clubs or something. Well, I don't know if he'll buy it, but I'll try. So you're in a trunk and I heard some voices and I hear the key go in pop and I saw a sweatshirt. And so I lunged out. The last thing you want to see or expect to see is a hand coming out of a trunk. 
And it was his wife because I saw her sweatshirt. I didn't know it was Joanne. She was so startled. She rolled, fell back, fell over the curb and tore her ACL. Oh, and no. so, yeah, it was just like, I, I didn't know it was her and she, yeah. I didn't want her to come out, but, but so I got out of the car, I tagged Joe. He was just like stunned in silence. Then we attended to Joanne and we took, we tended to her, took her back in. And then that night we took her out, gave her pizza and beer. Oh, that is awesome, and so just man. You've got stuff some like great that stories. It was awesome. It was great. And the best one was it. one of the most recent ones, Mike, or Joe, Mark Mangert, who I was in the first day of first grade with, one of my best friends at St. Francis of Assisi. And Mark dressed up because Joe teaches at Gonzaga Prep now, where we went to school. So Joe had the bullpup outfit, the mascot outfit, which is like the bulldog outfit from Gonzaga University. So Mangert and Tomberry snuck in their the mascot outfit. Mark, who's six five or six, six dressed up in the bullpup outfit. Couldn't see. We found out Brian was sitting in the third row of a game filmed on ESPN where uh, Gonzaga was playing USF. So Mark went down and tagged Brian and Brian didn't know what was going on. He was like handed him a, a piece of paper saying tag you're it. And then they got in trouble because the real mascot looks at Mark and he's like. If you like what you're listening to, please hit the subscribe button now doing and then the police got involved security and is like oh no 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 it's it's just part of a game so that was in my opinion the best tag mark oh, dressing up it. because mark's the most shy he's very quiet just the nicest guy you're gonna want to meet i love him and i've known him all my life practically and uh uh but that was a great tag and they have it at, at the end of the movie of tag you can see that tag happening because yeah. they show oh, real life real yeah. life tags at the end of at the end of the movie and critics, whether they it. liked the movie or hated the movie, said that that was the best part. Oh, I love it. I love it. I so love it. We, it came out in Wall Street Journal in 2013. Yes. The story, we had no idea. It hit, it hit the A-head column, which is the bottom third on the front page. Yeah. And and I, next thing I know, we're all getting flooded with, you know, I'm, I got a call from the UK right after mass at nine o'clock. Guys are getting calls from movie studios, documentary filmmakers. Uh, writers, and we had to form an LLC that day at wow. Tag Brothers. And then a bidding war kind of started, and then finally Warner Brothers uh, got the movie and made it, and it was released in 2018. That's amazing. That's so awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I expected. I know. That's amazing. I love it. Thanks. So cool. Thanks. It was All a right. blast. We're going to shift gears a bit. So tell us a little bit. I know um, becoming a priest, you know, some people are really not aware of how long it takes to become a priest. Um, and I'm just going to quote this. And again, if you know, folks that are listening in everything that I quote or cite, it's going to be on the description of this episode. Um, but it takes, there's, there's seven main steps and you can correct me if I'm wrong on that one to become a priest. And it takes anywhere between five to seven years from graduation to ordainment. Now, can you expound on this in regards to um, you know, examining your faith, uh, deciding to become a priest, what was the process? And then what were some of the aha moments and um, highlights? It's a great question. First of all, um, there, whether you're religious, when you, I entered, I was in the Jesuits for about 15 years and I was called incarnated into the diocese. So I left the Jesuits before taking final vows because I felt I fit in more into a, a diocesan priestly calling. And I, if you're in a religious order, 
it takes about 10 years. So it took me, I entered at 30, was ordained at 40, 18 years ago. And then uh, for diocesan priests usually take seven years because some of the men don't have college degrees. So they put them through what's called minor seminary. And so with diocesan priests, seven years, religious priests, perhaps up to 10 years. So that's, and that's a, because you're supposed to learn, you're required to, and that's an ongoing process of discernment too, because if you feel called to become a priest, it isn't like you choose, you feel called to become a priest by Christ. And uh, so we are called to pray about it. Even before we start studying to be a priest, there's a, a you're kind of in a, in a moment of discernment, so to speak. And you, are, you go through an application process where there's, they do rigorous psychological and psychiatric testing to make sure that your development, whether it be just psychological, psychosexual, um, whether you get, uh, how, what's your socialization like? Uh, how do you get along well with others? How do you re resolve conflict? Um, how do you live? Can you uh, take criticism? Can you also live in a way that, that, that is required in conformity with the requirements and, and the demands of the priesthood? Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it, it sounds like it's quite extensive. It and is. It's, I mean, it, it, to me, you know, what's interesting about it is it's amazing that you have a calling. Most people do not have a calling at that time in our lives, right? So we're all wondrously walking around trying to figure out what we want to do. And then once we go through the process of graduate, you know, college and graduation, a lot of times we're all like, what the heck did we just sign up for? Right. Um, and there, there was no psychological evaluation on my end in regards to what I went to college for. And when I went for my master's degree for you, you kind of had to go through, it's very, an ex, a very extensive process more so, um, even I'm fascinated by the psychological piece of it, which we're going to dive deeper in, into that. And, um, what you just explained is kind of mind-blowing to me. Um, so we know that it's quite extensive. It's not without, you know, deep consideration and where the path that you're going down to be, become ordained, right? But mm -hmm. I want to start talking about a hard topic. Um, in sure. 2016, Pope Francis declared a decree on training for Roman Catholic priests stressed that um, the obligations of sexual abstinence, as well as barring gay men and those who support gay culture from holy orders. Now, this is according to American Magazine, December of 2016. So we know there's a psychological evaluation involved, but to, to kind of pull from what Pope Francis said, um, how do they evaluate or determine homosexual tendencies? Who does this? How, how does that work? When you, first of all, take let's take a step back because okay. all of a sudden we're dip, dipping into deep waters here and controversial waters. And everybody, you'd mentioned calling, like you have the calling to be a wife and a mother. Right. And some people have a calling to be single. Um, everybody, the church recognizes because of a man going through this long process, arduous process of discernment and study and prayer and more prayer uh, to become a priest. Um, we're gonna, it's a grave responsibility. And just as, you know, they, a, a marriage couple goes through a fairly rigorous uh, process of discernment and also not evaluation, it's like an entrance exam in a marriage, 
uh, they take not a compatibility study, but a premarital inventory to see, well, what are the issues that are going to be arising in a, in a marriage? Like, how do, you, how do you resolve conflict? How do you do your budget? How do you, um, how do you look at natural family planning, et cetera, et cetera? Um, I think, and everybody's made in the image and likeness of God, everyone. There's no such thing as a bad person. Um, we are flawed people because we suffer from the effects of original sin, which is called concupiscence. Even though we're baptized, and even people who are not baptized are still made in the image and likeness of God. And as St. Thomas Aquinas said, we're the crown jewel of creation. We have the divine spark within us of, of free will and reason. And so the question of there's a distinction to be drawn as well catholic church uh has a program called courage which helps uh men and women with same-sex attraction to lead holy and chaste lives because if one is single one is called to lead a chaste life just as and there's a difference between celibacy and chastity a couple is called to be chaste as well not looking at each other as objects but as ends in and of themselves as, as, as daughters and sons of God. And so it's very, very important that the church take into account what challenges will a man face going through the process of formation because in a, and there's also a distinction because everybody being made in, in the image and likeness of God have a dignity that nobody can take away. Everybody has a vocation, but you know some people can. It's, there is an attrition rate with with formation because maybe um running escaping from something uh, a man might be escaping from his orientation or no he won't be getting married because he has same-sex attraction so you know it used to be where you know he knew he wouldn't be giving getting any, giving any children to his mother grandchildren to his mother and father he'd go enter into the priest life which is you know god works he draws good out of everything but it's for the good of the man that if, and there's a distinction to be, to be drawn between being having same-sex attraction and the gay lifestyle, which is socio-political. Uh, it's not necessarily um, something that just is, is mutually inclusive to being a person who has same-sex attraction. So having that sort of struggle, living with that sort of, of struggle, and the church recognizes the need for care for all individuals, but if you're going to be living and working side by side with men, that could be a real, uh, quite a remarkable challenge. And also the man, the priest is the act in persona Christi, whose bride is the church. And Jesus uses that language. And marriage, that language is used from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Jesus calls himself, you know, he's the bridegroom. And so in order to, um, and I'm not going to say fit, but in order to um, have a man be healthy and happy, um, the church really is guarded against that kind of, if someone who is an advocate of uh, the gay lifestyle, which carries with it certain elements that are opposed to the church, such as the encouragement to have sex outside of marriage or um and I think, you know, just as I, uh, uh, and Pope Francis actually had mentioned this, just as a single man or a single woman is called the chastity, it's a sin to commit uh, uh, premarital sex because that's 
for a man and a woman because that's the moment where you're closest to God. And to have a mockery made of it, or even not a mockery, I'm not saying it is a mortal sin, but to have sex outside of marriage. But the church is looking at everybody, not just you know people with same-sex attraction, but single men and women as well, calling them to a greater degree of happiness. Because once that unitive act happens, there's a psychological, spiritual, uh, obviously physical component, and our culture sees it as nothing but a contact sport sex and we're inundated by all sorts of uh messages on billboards tv social media that you know hooking up is okay and it's not because it's dangerous and the church it's real mercy that the church wants not a false mercy that pretends to embrace everything because as cardinal george says the late cardinal francis george of chicago said you know all are welcome in Christ's church, but according to Christ's and the church's terms, not yours. So it includes and excludes certain aspects. So it's a hard one to deal with sometimes because, but you know, they have to draw that distinction because in the documents themselves, they talk about the difference between someone in terms of going through the process of application for the priest and someone who might be. Um, have same-sex attraction or someone who might be an advocate or kind of a militant um, advocate and participant in the uh, in the gay kind of lobby, uh, in the lifestyle and the entanglements that that might lead to uh, as, a, as a man of God. And so, you know, men and women of same-sex attraction are still made in the image and likeness of God. They're to be loved, they're to be cared for, but you have to be able to be discerning, you know, to make sure that that a person is going to be comfortable and uh, and the church is going to be confident because it's a grave responsibility to administer the sacrament. Absolutely. So my question then, so we're there's so many things that we can go down different roads to talk about in what you yeah. just said. So um, so we're it's clear, right? It's clear by the church's stance that homosexuality is not there's, you cannot become a priest and partake in the gay lifestyle. Exactly. Exactly. It's just like, it's just like for, for me, it was pointed out, you do realize what celibacy is. You cannot engage in conjugal sexual relations with another woman from the moment you even enter into candidacy. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So that is something, and it's, it's for the sake of the greater good of the of the faithful so it will be completely available so then to the other so then okay so you so it's clear and they go through the psychological evaluation like you explained now if if you are a person that is gay right or aligns with you know homosexuality but not wants to partake in the gay culture you still you still cannot become part of the clergy correct well, if 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 one claim if one states that they're they're part of that that kind of socio-political cultural milieu and participates in it and continues to participate in it, that would disqualify somebody from being in the priesthood. Okay, and there's a distinction you. between that and somebody of same-sex attraction because there's a difference between a person who identifies as gay and someone who has same-sex attraction. And the church is called to distinguish or the church is called to discern you know, um, and I, I actually haven't read the document in, in years, so I can't uh, really uh, say 
confidently what the exact nuances of that are. Okay. So my other question is, now we're going to go, it's a little bit stingy of a topic to talk about, but we're going to talk a little, if we've got time, Father, um, about- Sure, absolutely, absolutely. Goodbye Good Men book by Michael Rose. Michael Rose. May of 2001, which that book, if you're interested, will be on my Amazon page um, for those folks that follow me on Amazon. Um, But he talks about the percentage at that time of homosexuals that make up the Catholic clergy. And we can talk a little bit about, I haven't read that book, but I did pull some things from that book to kind of think about and further expound on. But he said 30 to 40% of homosexuals make up the Catholic clergy. He also discusses the causes of this. So the causes of the chronic priest shortage, the misuse of psychological screening, and then blatant discrimination against the young kind of young men who were once considered ideal candidates for the vocation. What's your thoughts on that? It's a, it's a, very, it's a good book worth looking at. They quote John Tregilio, Father John Tregilio, who I don't know personally, but have contacted him via email. Very good uh, a priest, but he was tried to be, he was, uh, they tried to drum him out of the seminary. And I think it, it's part of a bigger piece. Um, yes, that those statistics may conflate with reality. However, a lot of the, a lot of the premise, a lot what lies in the premise of goodbye, good man is these, these are men who, like, if you, at that time, the formatories had like formation, the houses of formation in the United States had to undergo an investigation from the Vatican because all these strange things were happening. People were acting out, uh, you know, their sexual identity and their sexual, they were acting out and they were immersing themselves in different cultures and the Vatican had to step in. But the most important thing and the crucial uh, aspect to that was ideological where people who, were dissenting uh, against teachings of the church. More often than not, the sixth commandment were basically trying to change a church from within. So they would drum out priests or discourage them or not kick them out, but ease them out uh, in a way where they could get, they would only be of one ideological stripe. Uh, So they would try to kind of uh, flesh out the guys who loved J.P. St. John Paul II, um, who who agreed with Humana, who agreed with the encyclical issued by Pope Paul VI, Humana Vitae, who were pro-life, who believed in the in the in the unicity and the unique salvific element of Christ Jesus being the savior of mankind. So you had these kind of committed, very committed leftists of the Saul Alinsky stripe who wanted to who were kind of more worshiping at the altar of of marxism or leftism or uh, you know after the cultural revolution in the united states and the sexual revolution um if they they, they would try to um discourage men who really loved the church uh who didn't want to change a church who just wanted to celebrate mass as it is not make it into a circus which a lot of people did and a lot of people left because of that you know and so having liturgical dance or changing the words of the eucharistic prayer which vatican II forbids and so the book is is invaluable to read uh just from a standpoint of taking accounts of of people like father Trigilio who were quoted in the book who were you know 
lived in a very hostile environment that didn't seem to welcome our kind, you know, the yeah. person who's who loves the church, who not the church that they think is going to be, but loves the church as she is. Um, because as Father Richard John Newhouse said, the late Richard John Newhouse, God chose humans, not angels, to govern the church. So we have feet of clay. So it's very important to recognize that there was a moment, and I think it's a lot better now, where uh, men are invited to, to be fairly treated, to undergo the same rigorous process of formation in order to test themselves, for the men to test the church, to see if there's a good fit for serving the people of God, because we're going to be held account for our actions and judgment day and and priests even a graver um judgment will will befall me and so the church recognizes this and being a priest it's, it's hard work but then again being a mom being a wife doing what you do with your profession is hard work as well there's different different callings i love that thank you i appreciate that you saying that sure yes sure. it's true because my hat's it's off to the parents my mom and dad i saw what they you know, went through, and I always say at mass, you know, kids, obey your folks. They know what they're doing. They've been through what you've been through. And I don't know how parents do it. I'm just like looking around when I visit at dinner and just like, wow, I mean, you know, you're just, uh, I don't know. It's it's a grace. God gives people the necessary grace. Oh, I need lots of grace. <laughs> so do I. So I need I. lots, oh. lots. <laughs> Well, okay. I want to say something about the changing of the church, because I think that's an important part. And I'm going to go mm -hmm. into the, um, and, I, and I hate to keep driving down this road of the homosexuality, but we do need to get to some of the recent current events that are taking place, you know, in our culture that feels like an assault on the Catholic Christian faith, right? So number oh, yeah. one- And they're right. It, yeah. Yeah. And number one is Father James Martin, who's known as the LGBTQAI plus priest, um, has- has proposed an alternate to the catechism, which is, you know, education for the youth, where they create a separate catechism for homosexual youth. What's your thoughts on that? Um, I've met Father Martin once. Um, I, I do think that he's, he's out of his lane and out of his league. Um, you know, you can't, the catechism of the Catholic Church stumbled in 1983 by and put together, there were different catechisms, but they had to have an updated catechism. Uh, no, it's like asking to have a parallel church, proposing a parallel church, and that's impossible. And you cannot change the truth about human nature. Uh, the anthropology of the church is correct. And um, I think it's, it's an idea. Um, you know, Father Martin is a religious, he's a Jesuit, lives in New York City, very well known, kind of a celebrity priest. Um, but this is an idea that that dog ain't gonna hunt, you know, because you're proposing a parallel magisterium, you're proposing a parallel church, and he should engage in great books like UCAT, the Youth Catechism by St. Ignatius Press, or, you know, there, there's a number of uh, publications based off the UCAT that are just outstanding. I read it because it's great, it has great stuff. And it's just Y-O-U-C-A-T, Youth Catechism. Okay. So we already have, so it's not part of the official, it's not an official catechism of youth. It's just, it's a play, 
it's basically expounding on her or um, going into a more deep and understand, but yet understandable, uh, accessible uh, explication of the existing catechism for the sake of the youth. So the UCAP isn't some sort of another parallel universe or parallel magisterium or parallel church. It's simply uh, explaining the catechism as it is in more understandable terms and more dynamic terms with exercises and things like that to do. Well, don't I think honestly that's what we need is to educate, right? But we don't need to create an exclusive group, which exclusivity is not, you know, for those that are want to practice the Catholic faith, but align with, you know, their homosexual uh, orientation. So, I mean, it, it seems like to me that this type of uh, Jesuit priest is wanting to create exclusivity within the church. Would you agree with that? Yeah. And it's, yeah. And it's an unintentional consequence because it's, it's all in the name of inclusivity. But when you go through that process, it's leading to an exclusive sort of mindset and apart from the church. So it's just, it's an, it's an idea, but it's like they had the Dutch catechism years ago, the Dutch had proposed a new catechism. And this is probably the first time you've heard of it because that's what happens to projects like these. They'll be, you know, swept away in the dustbin of history as Peggy Noonan would say. Oh, got it. Wow. I have not, I have not heard of that, but I will research it. Um, okay. So I want to go deeper into, you know, these kind of changes and proposals and things like that. But I, I also want to point out in the most recent news, the Archdiocese of New York is investigating an LGBTQAI plus large art display that had three paintings titled God is Trans, a queer spiritual journey at the Church of St. Paul, the Apostle in Manhattan. Now, the the New York Post labeled the church as a very liberal church. Now, and, Mm. and now we know after I read some recent, more recent news reports that the Archdiocese of New York was not aware of what was, you know, this display that was taking, that was put in inside the church and that they were only aware of it because they were alerted by media. Now, what they're doing about it, which I have now learned is that um, they're keeping it up, but they've changed the the wording in the title. So I want to know, (laughs) to me, it seems there's some political influence that impacts. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, how much political influence impacts, you know, these churches and then who makes the decision on, you know, how this is handled? Something like this. This is a specific example. Well, at first, at ground level, the priest, nothing happens without the the permission of the of the pastor. Okay. Pastor coming from pastoral leading the sheep. Uh, you have an Herculean archdiocese of New York and there are things that can happen in dioceses even in small dioceses that surprise the the uh, hierarchy or the the, arch, the auxiliary bishops the archbishops of the several dicasteries so some are these archdioceses I mean those poor you know auxiliary bishops and the archbishop they're they're I don't know how they do it it's not an enviable position in which to be but you can have, these are oftentimes, I think what is operative is you have in the 70s and 80s, starting the 60s, there was what we call a, vert, a horizontal sort of stress on things. 
avoiding and criticizing the hierarchical structure of the church because heaven is hierarchical and the church is Jesus's bride. So you have pastoral councils uh, proposing these. You either have a priest unaware of things too. A priest can be unaware of these things and then all of a sudden caught you know, in the crossfire. And so maybe right now they're slow walking things to try to rectify the, correct the situation, but it only happens because of the permission or the continuance and continuance of it from the pastor, because the pastor has rights, the pastor has authority uh, that the archbishop or the bishop grants them. Now we sign an oath of fidelity. A lot of, this is very important. I was thinking about last night. Priests sign before they're ordained an oath of fidelity, and I can send it to you, but there it says that I, I concur, I, I am giving my life over to the church, and I accept, and I will uh, radiate, or I will communicate the teachings of the church in toto on faith and morals, so in a way, the whoever is doing this, if they are a cleric, they're violating their own oath of fidelity to the church that they sign themselves before ordination. What so happens with that, that? That includes and excludes certain things to do. For example, I cannot put, uh, there's no way I'm going to advocate for a certain political party in my church or put out a campaign sign. Years ago, there was a campaign sign for presidential candidates somewhere in the Missoula area and the Bishop, Bishop Thomas, who's Archbishop Thomas of Las Vegas told, called and told uh, summarily the pastor, you will get off, get that off the lawn right now. And so the, the, the Archbishop has a lot of power, but sometimes you can't control everything that's going on. It's like, you know, all these machinations and, you know, it's not like the Archbishop has this wall, like in Batman's cave, where he can see all the activities that the church is going on and the exterior art or deviant art that's going on. So that was absolutely wrong for that uh, parish to do. And it should be taken care of, you know, because it's espousing a political movement and a sociological movement um, that puts a lot of pressure on people and is really right now has a lot of power to cancel people and ruin their lives if they don't agree with it. So, absolutely. Yeah, You've made some so many good points, and I, I think we're going to keep going with this if you have a little That's bit more great. time. Sure, of um, course. Yeah, that'd I, be great. I think it's wonderful that you know they, they're removing political influence, which means everyone needs to be on the same page. You know, that's it's it's interesting because these things are kind of happening, they're sneaking into all of our churches, even in rural churches, like you mentioned. Do you well, I think too, we're called, I agree with George Weigel. He's a friend of mine and Weigel is probably the premier Catholic intellectual um, in the United States uh, today. And he has a lot of great writings and great books. He wrote the authoritative biography of John Paul, St. John Paul II called Witness to Hope. And he says, we have to transcend political categorizations because we are called to be Catholic. And there's a book he wrote is beautiful called The Courage to be Catholic, another book, The Truth of Catholicism. Also within this mix is there's an encroachment of people who are being somewhat brainwashed by what Philip Jenkins called the last ex acceptable prejudice. Philip Jenkins is an author, he's an agnostic, he's not Catholic, but he's probably one of the best defenders of Orthodox Catholicism that there is. I mean, the questions have been settled. 
I mean, we're called to unity. Jesus said, unum sint, he wants us all to be one. But you have to propose, you can't impose somebody's ideas, but I think it's endemic upon, uh, uh, it's a responsibility of all Catholics to learn the faith, get a compendium of the catechism. The catechism is about that thick, so get a compendium of the catechism, which is very readable. Uh, learn about the truth of the faith. Don't get your, your theology from the New York Times, the Newsweek and Time, who are anti-Catholic and anti-Christian. And so we are called the unity, but it's a responsibility of the church to propose the truth, not impose, but also don't back away. And, you know, Philip Jenkins wrote a book called The Last Acceptable Prejudice, Anti-Catholicism. And he gives, uh, he, he addresses this issue because if you don't, you know, he says, now it's people of weaponized speech where if you don't agree with flying a pride flag, well, you're a bigot. And that's not true. You're exhibiting true mercy and true inclusivity in that inform people so that they can make informed decisions based on, and I'm not saying there are all bad elements of these uh, organizations that I mentioned, I'm not criticizing them. I'm just saying that, you know, we can't espouse one political movement over another that's more morally urgent because the most morally urgent issue is the pro-life world, where even though we've had Roe v. Wade overturned, um, that's the most morally urgent issue. So you should start at the, there's a hierarchy of truths and that, you know, the truth is, uh, and especially with the constitution, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, starting with life. So I think people get caught up in an emotional, I think people should, one of the answers is just to learn logic, teach your kids logic, you know, encourage it being taught at school because it's all right now emotion. It's just, um, it's just pathos where, People appear to pathos, which is uh, which is pure emotion. So ad hominem attacks are leveled. People are making decisions out of anger, out of fear, and the pandemic really stoked those fires as well. Yes. And it really transformed, or it actually affected and damaged a lot of people because political science was mixed with science, which is not a healthy thing and it's not good for America. But we need to learn logic. We need to learn what's uh, about our country, the history of the country, what really makes it great. We're one country under God, um, indivisible. And so we have to go back to the roots. Um, and that is funny because they call it radical. Radical means root. So I'm not calling for radical uh, action as, as a postmodernist would, postmodernist would say, but uh, it's very important for us to um, embrace Catholicism as she is, because Archbishop Fulton Sheen, venerable Archbishop Fulton Sheen said, millions of people have left the church, but very few have left the church after they know about who she really is and the richness and the depth and the beauty of what she teaches. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yes. So I, what I, I want to dive, I know there's anti-Catholicism happening and, you know, I don't want to keep going down this doom and gloom road because I do want to talk about solutions like you're saying, let's educate, right. let's learn more. And how can we do that? Um, but, you know, there are blatant attacks and anti-Catholicism type, you know, events that are happening. Now we have Pride Month this month. And one of the things that I want to say, which was really disheartening for me, because I do have a lot of gay friends and, mm -hmm. um, and you know, I do know of drag, drag, you know, that they do perform drag. Um, but I was really shocked that there was this silencing or quieting of 
you know, not acknowledging or not saying that's a bad thing that they're doing this, but um, the Dodgers Pride Night drama, which event eventually reached the White House, but it's about the invited group that the LA Dodgers invited to a family friendly night, a game night, um, a group of drag queens that were dressed as nuns called the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Now, that's blatant mockery of, and that's, that's blasphemy and sacrilege. Absolutely. And I saw a video, which for folks, you guys, I'll probably post some videos if I can on Patreon. Um, I tried to post some folks or post some videos as to what this group did and has done. Um, it's, it's really honestly disgusting. And I think, you know, why would they target, target Catholics? Why wouldn't they target Muslims or Jews and dress up as a Jew or dress up as a Muslim and perform the acts that they have performed on the stage? It's disappointing to me to think they, they want, you know, they want us to, you know, celebrate them or, you know, be kind and, but yet there's an, a blatant attack towards our identity that we identify with faith. Right. So my thought is what's your, why, what, why choose the, um, you know, the Catholic faith to mock? What's your thoughts? on uh, Well, first of all, take a step back and, you know, people are oftentimes there's, we have to take a step back and realize through baptism, we have the effects of original sin washed away, which is death. Um, however, there's, you know, a lot of original sin going around and sins being glorified and uh, people are losing a sense of God. More people, a lot of young people identify themselves as nuns, N-O-N-E-S, uh, rather than Catholic. And a lot of people have, for every one Catholic who enters, six leave. And I think people are embracing the, the cultural mores and it's kind of like a quick fix sort of, of a solution about false mercy. And I think, okay, getting back, but there's a lot of original sin to go around. We're all sinners, but you know, there is a, we are in a battle. You said it at the beginning and uh, Bishop Barron had a great, if you can look it up on YouTube, he had a great erudite refutation of the sisters of perpetual indulgence i heard about them in the early 90s late 80s early 90s and they are just they dress up in a really demonic way mocking nuns who are the lifeblood of the church who through their prayer and service historically and currently whether they be cloistered or whether they be out in the world it's an insult to nuns you know and it's, it's a satanic mockery everything Everything demonic is an inversion of the good. And their motto is go and sin some more. So it, it's very strange. It's based, it's a mockery of Jesus uh, saying to the woman, caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. So they are directly contradicting the very words from the lips of Jesus Christ. And they don't do charity work. They do political advocacy work. They hate the church. And they are simply making a mockery of uh, a ministry of the church and a calling of the church of women to serve God and to model themselves as the brides of Christ. So, yeah, it's a ridiculous thing. It's a political move. It's probably based on, you know, a lot of uh, movements uh, that are that are backed or people like the perpetual or the sisters of perpetual indulgence are probably backed with a lot of people with a lot of money and a lot of influence and who are anti-Catholic. 
And I think the reason why people are anti-Catholic, the Catholic Church is the only institution that stands up for the truth. It's, it's, they see it as a monolithic entity and a monolithic enemy. And so it's very important to realize that these secular, aggressive, anti-Christian forces are at work. Um, the devil is at foot, at foot, you know, and the masks are coming off. They had Satan con it in the, in the Copley Center in Boston, where I used to live in Boston. It's a huge um, convention center. And, you know, they, they're just, the, the masks are off. And so, you know, the Dodgers made a terrible mistake in doing this. I, I don't know what they're thinking or if they're thinking, but it's, it, they're just allowing you, why don't you just have the Ku Klux Klan come in? By the way, Margaret Sanger, who's the founder of Planned Parenthood, a lot of the people who support the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence are either allies with or in business with or, in, or invest in Planned Parenthood founded by Margaret Sanger, who is a eugenicist. She believed in a Malthusian uh, way of uh, outlook that we should just eliminate useless eaters. And she called African-Americans human weeds. And most of the abortions committed today are performed on African-Americans. And she intentionally had her Planned Parenthood clinics put all around African neighborhoods. But I'm getting back to what I'm getting. It's all part of a piece because the Catholic Church with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, there's been a, uh, a massive, because they know they're blaming the church because the church has always stood up for life since the first century. And it's very, um, it's, it's part of a bigger piece of anti-Catholic bigotry. You might as well have the Ku Klux Klan come in or you know uh, uh, some sort of other uh, hate group, white and nationalist group to come into the LA Dodgers to honor them because they are in effect of uh, the same spirit, which is not the Holy Spirit, but the spirit of the evil one uh, who wishes to divide. That's what devil means, divide. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's a travesty, it's an abomination. It is a uh, sacrilege, it's blasphemy that the, uh, but, but then again, you know, this has been around since, you know, I mean, since Christianity began, you had the Roman emperors, you had, you know, several despotic uh, individuals who were mass murderers. Hitler killed 10 million, uh, murdered 10 million, Stalin, 20 million, Mao Zedong, 50 million. And those are the only numbers we know. And then you have the junior dictators like Pol Pot, or um, you have people like, uh, you had people like, uh, um, uh, Castro, who, you know, throws people in jail. In North Korea, there was a two-year-old boy and his family thrown into prison for life. Why? Because they had a Bible in their home. Mm -hmm. So it's part of a bigger piece. It's part of that cosmic battle. What should we do? We should pray, educate ourselves, sanctify ourselves. Don't point, don't condemn a person. So when we point a finger, we have three other fingers pointing back at us. We need to start with the, the battle between the devil and God is on the human heart, my heart, your heart. And we have to take care of our own part of the vineyard, but we still have to stand up, join, you know, school boards, speak up at school boards, vote. Uh, we need to uh, be advocates. What you're doing right now, you're part talking about a solution, but we also have to realize we're on a pilgrimage. This is not our home. Our home is heaven. We're on a pilgrimage and we can't put our trust in human princes entirely. Are we, are we called to respond with charity, but also bold charity and proclaim the truth? Yes, 
But we do have to realize a lot of these uh, people who have, are part of this movement see them moving towards a utopia. And the, Thomas More wrote that book, Utopia, which means no place. Yeah. It's, it's a, not a place. So w- what we need to keep our eyes focused on is, is God and work on pleasing God, not people. So we shouldn't be afraid. Oh, I'm going to offend this person. But a lot of people are in a really tight situation because they're going to get fired for speaking out or not going to one of these stupid diversity trainings where, you know, they're not going to pay attention. They don't, don't do any good. You can't. They're trying to impose, not propose. Right. So, and I think people are essentially good, um, but we make mistakes. Anybody can be vulnerable to being brainwashed. We have to pray for these uh, men who are in the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence for their uh, conversion. You never know. They might be little St. Paul's, you know? So yeah. uh, it's, it's just very important. But you touch upon something that's just uh, extraordinarily important uh, for us to uh, continue to talk about, hopefully, maybe on another podcast. But yes, this is very important uh, what you bring out. And, it, and it, we have to also realize, you know, we have to love the individuals. Um, be civil and, you know, not condemn one single person, but we do have to make judgments about, I mean, we make a judgment every day to get up. You made a judgment to invite me, uh, this least priest onto a podcast. So, you know, we make judgments every day. We're called to make value judgments. We're not called to say so-and-so is going to hell, which is what is exactly the Holy Father said in that statement, who might have judged, which was misinterpreted by the media because they they took one little slice of his conversation and then painted, and then they overgeneralized. Yeah. Thank you. That actually, everything that you just said covered about six of my questions. <laughs> so um, what can we do, especially as parents, you know, of the Christian faith, Catholic faith, what can we do? We educate, we, um, you know, uh, you know, keep teaching and keep staying convicted on our faith and, and knowing that, you know, God loves us. And this is not our home, right? It's the spiritual life afterwards. So I, that really is helpful and encouraging to me. Good. I'm glad. Well, thank you. And I think, because I was thinking about your questions a lot as we were talking about this and praying about it. And, you know, you know, I'm a sinner uh, called by Christ to serve him as we all are. And we are in a battle though. And it's like St. Paul said, it's not flesh and blood. That's why we're not called to blame certain people. It's the devils at work. But also God has, you know, Christus Vincent, uh, Christ conquered on the cross. And we're called to stand, serve under the standard of the cross and have true mercy, um, true charity, not false mercy or false charity. And uh, to do the best, like my mom said, you do the best you can. That's all you can do. And realize we're not God. God works through everything. He worked through St. Paul. You know, he worked through um, uh, uh, Norman McCorvey, who was Jane Roe, who became Catholic and was an advocate for parole. Bernard Nathanson, he was one of the founding members of NARAL. Uh, and he ended up being welcomed to the Catholic Church by Cardinal O'Connor. So there's hope for everybody up until the moment of death. And God is the final judge. And but we're called to try to help one another make saints of one another. So yes. you're doing have, you're doing doing I'm your trying. part. I'm trying. I have you're three doing... three questions for you. Those are my these are my big sure. questions that I ask. Okay. Number one, okay. what inspires you with the work that you do? 
Christ. It's uh, Christ and the Holy Family. Um, his his self-sacrificial love is the font of infinite mercy and infinite goodness. I love it. Okay, second question is, what do you hope to see yourself doing in five to 10 years? Hopefully still staying at um, St. Richard's and St. Charles and you don't leave. <laughs> I wish to be doing the will of God and the, the ordinary everyday activities uh, where, and I want to be where the bishop wants me to be. Uh, he's the apostle. I hope to be here. Um, uh, I hope to be healthy and uh, just want to be doing, you know, uh, little acts with great love as, as uh, the little flowers St. Teresa did. I love it. Last question. What hope rope message would you give to somebody who's struggling with their faith? You are not alone. Uh, God, Christus Vincent, God wins. And you are loved. You are needed. And no matter what state of life you're in, God loves you with an infinite love. Um, and we're the church of the second, third, fourth, fifth, so on and so forth chance. So for anybody struggling, hey, you're in good company because even St. Teresa of Calcutta struggled. Jesus struggled in the temptation in the garden, you know, the temptation in the desert and the agony in the garden. So you're in great company. You're not alone. Turn to our Lord. Turn to Jesus. Talk to Jesus, Mary and Joseph. Talk to the Holy Trinity and know that they're there for you. And probably a lot of other people are there for you. All you have to do is pretty easy to communicate these days. Call a friend, call a priest, call your minister, um, you know, call a counselor, a psychologist, but no, you're loved. Oh, I love that. Okay. My final question, father, I'll let you go, but, um, where can people go to learn more about you? I know you have something exciting to share, so please share. <laughs> Thanks. Well, you know, it's interesting because there was a, a gentleman uh, who, who approached me and there's a really, it's a burgeoning project. It's called the Parish uh, Podcast Project. And it's, it's just starting. And if you go to our website uh, to St. Charles Borromeo and Whitefish or St. Uh, Richard, uh, in Columbia Falls, St. Richard's of Columbia Falls, Montana. If you scroll down, you go to the website. And so I'm going to do a, we're having a podcast and a little introduction by me. Then Shannon takes and he grabs from other uh, priests or other presentations like on the Eucharist, on forgiveness, on different aspects of, of living the life of Christ. So it's called the Parish Podcast. It just started. We I think we have it at the St. Richard website right now. I'm still waiting to get it put up. Uh, I got to call the webmaster and ding at her and ask her to put it on the St. Charles website, but it should be fun. And it's just, I do a little recording for a few minutes, say a few things, um, that and two bucks will buy you a cup of coffee. Then he integrates it into a bigger picture of the podcast. And it's really, it's called the Parish Podcast Project. Other, ask your priests to look into it. Shannon's a great guy. And uh, they're looking for more and more parishes to participate because it's a very unitive uh, way of, of continuing to sanctify, our, allowing God to sanctify us and by uh, sharing our faith. That's phenomenal. I Thanks. love it. You're going to be so good at it too. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. You're great. I mean, you're pro. I'm just, no. I'm trying to do the best I can, but you do a wonderful job. And I really appreciate, uh, Julie, everything you're doing and your project, which is a ministry in and of itself. 
I don't know how you, you're a parent. You have three great kids. You have an awesome husband. And it's just, I don't know how you do it, but this is, I'm really grateful for what you do uh, in helping others. You just don't know the good you're doing until you open your eyes in eternal life. Then you'll see how many people you helped. I just want to conclude though. I knew the moment I met you at Catherine's house playing ping pong that I was like, <laughs> I love him. He, he, he oh, and I are going to, we're going to hang out. We're going to get coffee. We and we're did. Gonna we talk. And we're going to get to know one yeah. another. So we, we're, we're, sim it. we're simpatico. We're simpatico. I really enjoyed <laughs> it as well. And uh, yeah. there was, uh, hopefully maybe we can do this again. And there was another thing I wanted to, oh yeah. Um, uh, I'm trying to think other writers to take a look at, but I would encourage George Weigel. Uh, Father Robert Spitzer just came out with a great book, The Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church. It's available on Amazon. Um, he's really good. Again, Father Robert Spitzer, S-P-I-T-Z-E-R. And uh, yeah, it's it's uh, there's a wealth of great information for people to look at. EWTN, Eternal Word Television Network. Um, and, you know, just all, go to Zenit or go to the Vatican website that has Vatican News. Thank you so much. I had a Thank great you, time Julie. with you today. Thank you for getting up early and having this conversation with me. All right, you it's guys. my honor. Thank you, too. <laughs> Stay tuned, you guys, for our next episode. Take care. A special thank you to our guest expert, Father Sean Raftis of the Parish Podcast Project. You can find all of his links in the description of this episode. If you like what you heard, please hit the subscribe button and you'll be notified of future episodes. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, or connect with us through our website at www.flipinshift.com. Again, www.flipinshift.com.